Morning, welcome to Gunstone Church Liverpool. My name's Paul, one of the leaders here. If you're new, visiting, really big special welcome to you as well. You join us as we are making our way through our series on, on lament. And we've headed in now, or we're just about to start in Lamentations, the book itself. So if you want to open your Bibles at Lamentations 1 and 2, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll start. Father of mercies, God of all comfort. Thank you that you are here with us today and we just pray that we would hear your voice today. This is your word to us, so so we pray as we open up your word to us and sit under your word that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us all. Father, we ask this in the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. In 1995, the poem, If by Rudyard Kipling was voted the nation's favorite poem. And what it does, it teaches stoicism, like a crack on, keep moving. Don't let life affect you kind of mentality. Let me read just a few sections of it just to get a feel for it. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop, and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings, and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose, and start again at your beginnings, and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, and so hold on when there is nothing in you, except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Yours is the earth and everything that's in it and which is more. You'll be a man, my son. It's a beautiful poem on one level but also very, very dangerous. Through this series and as we come to to preach the different um, books that we're working through, I'll often talk to people, I'll engage with people, and I'll see where people are, and and I'll kind of look at at life through the lens of the scripture that we're walking through. And I've been in conversation with a a good friend of mine called Miles, who many of you know goes to the church. Now, Miles used to be a Marine, and and he's now a teacher in the the Army, the Marine. Is that right, Miles? Yeah teacher of the, the folks who are coming into the Marines. So we, and what he tells me is that, that this poem is actually used to teach the young men who are entered into the Marines. And so it's this kind of pushback. It's this pushback against a hyper-emotionalism, a, a perceived weakness of men. And so they teach stoicism, a crack on. Don't let things affect you. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. Just roll with the blows. Push on. Push it down. Don't talk about it. In fact, don't breathe a word, a direct line from the poem. And these kind of, this idea and this kind of philosophy is walking through life. It might have some immediate benefits, maybe in battle or in team dynamics. But can also be dangerous. These men witness firsthand, firsthand the brokenness of the world. Right in front of them. And these men have so much unexpressed pain and anger, suffering. Lots of questions that are about life that, that, that just witnessing and being part of these things will throw up existential questions. What do you do with all of that emotion? 
Where do you take these questions, these real questions, these real emotions that sit there? This is saying, don't breathe a word, move forward, don't show weakness. It's not what men do. In conversation with Miles, he would say he would draw lines directly between this mentality and problems that are suffered from those that leave the military. How do we process? You see, the result of this is emotionally high levels of depression of people who leave the military. Relationship difficulties, breakup of families, and high rates of suicide. How do we process the brokenness, the pain, the suffering? How do we make sense of the existential questions that we all have? What's going on? What's happening? How do I make sense of what I've seen, what I experience? What does the future hold? How do we process what life throws at us? And I say this as a 45-year-old man. Through each passing decade, because life throws up a load of different challenges the further on you go through it. And it can cause major problems. We live, don't we, folks? I don't know if you realize, but we live in a very anxious world. We live in a depressed world. We live in a world which is searching for, for meaning, a world where people are searching for purpose and identity and hope wherever they can find it. And as a church, we are in the middle of a series on lament. And the reason we're doing this is because we've all walked through a, a tricky year and a half. Some difficulties. We might not be on the, the front face of war and that conflict, but we're definitely walking through strange times, challenging times. And we've all, in some way or another, experienced the, the brokenness, death creeping forward into our lives from the periphery to the front, decay in ways that we haven't done before. And what God does, He invites us through laments to bring it to Him, to process all that we are seeing, witnessing and experience with Him. And so for four weeks, what we've done, we, we, we looked at how to lament. So we looked at turn, complain, ask, and trust. We looked at it through the Psalms, this, the process. This is how to lament. This is a, a, a processing tool for us that God uses in the Psalms. And for the next three weeks, what we're going to look is we're going to actually jump into the book of Lamentations and work through Lamentations and look at what we can learn from lament. So we've learned how to lament. Now we're going to learn from lament. And we chose the book of Lamentations for a reason. I don't know if, if you're like me, but Lamentations is one of those books that you might have read a lot. You're probably going to recognize a, a few verses in chapter 3, which are real famous verses that you hear a lot of and you'll see stuck on fridges and stuff. But often we'll bypass a lot of the rest of Lamentations. Or it's a book that we'll read through quickly. And Lamentations isn't a book that we can do that with. Lamentations is a book that we kind of need to sit in. We need to come back to. We need to experience life to. We need to ask God to actually help us understand it so we can process what's going on. And what Lamentations does, it gives a, a full expression to pain and to grief. And I would like to encourage you, I'm going to pull out some of the verses in Lamentations 1 and 2. It's a lot of um, verses in Lamentations 1 and 2. And the idea is not to go through each verse, verse by, verse by verse today, but I want to encourage you to go, go and read it this week, sit in it, pray it through. And let me help you as you do, because I actually think from, from my own experience of walking through Lamentations, it's helpful to get a feel for the book and understand what it is and what's going on. Okay, so the book is set up in a, in a, in a certain way. And what it is, you've got five chapters, and each of those five chapters are five poems. And on one level, they're all separate. But there's also a, like a circularity to it. The kind of like grief has where you go back, back over certain things. And it's written, who I believe, by, even though it's anonymous, I believe it's written by the prophet uh, Jeremiah. 
And what you see in chapter 1, it's written from the point of view of, of like Lady Zion, from her grief and shame. It's a call out from God's people, corporately from God's people. And you see Jerusalem and Judah and the people epitomized there. And there's a metaphor there in the sense of the, this Lady Zion. In chapter 2, we get the fall of Jerusalem and God's wrath expressed. In chapter 3, we get this suffering one. Um, who, who cries out, which we'll meet next week. And then chapter four, we get the siege of Jerusalem. And chapter five, it changes. And it's this communal lament. It changes style and it changes the way that the poem functions. The first four chapters, there's a similarity to it. And there's a reason for that as you work through it. And these first four chapters, they're all what's called an acrostic poem, each of them. An acrostic poem is like an alphabet poem. So in English, it would be the first stanza, the first group of, uh, the first few lines would be start with A, then B, then C, if it was English. But obviously it's written in Hebrew, so it's the Hebrew alphabet. And they make their way. So chapter one is that acrostic alphabet poem all the way through. And it's basically an ordered expression of grief and pain. Because grief, pain, suffering, questions, doubt, they're quite chaotic. When life throws up experiences that you can't make sense of. It is chaotic. It's hard to formulate. And what this is, this is an A to Z expression of grief and pain. And it's all a lament. So we call it the book of Lamentations, but in Hebrew it's called How. And the reason it's called How is because chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see the first word is How. Chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see the first word is How. And chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see the first verses. first word is, is How. It's a lament. It's a how does this happen? How is this possible? How did God let this happen so what can we learn from lament and i've got three things three big things for us to pull from first of all we can talk to god bring our situations bring our tears bring our emotions to god so what is the the situation now what i'm going to do i'm going to pull out certain verses okay it's going to be too quick to, to follow on the screen feel free to if you want to follow it in your bibles but also, can I just encourage you, feel free just to listen and take in the story as it flows through. And we'll circle back around some of these verses just to, to see what God is showing us. So first of all, what's the situation? Verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So Jerusalem, this once bustling capital city, this hub of spiritual life, this hub of cultural life is, is now like a widow. It's gone from being a princess to a slave. She was great among the nations, but now, verse 3, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place, gone from, from being great amongst the nations to being captured and dwelling amongst the nations. And so the nation has been taken away. They've gone into exile. God's people are now slaves. It's the year 587 BC, it's around then, when this big mighty army, the Babylonian army, which was the big powerful army at that particular point in time, came to Jerusalem and besieged the city for three years. And what they did after, after overtaking the city, they took some off and they left some behind. So God's people are either in exile under a foreign power as captives, or they are in the brokenness of, of Jerusalem. And think here, you know, the pictures you see on TV of these war-torn cities of, in the Middle East of Beirut and, and those places. It's like that. It's basically a war-torn city. The house is destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. The, the walls have been knocked down and they're under a foreign power. And for the people sitting there and living there, all the, all the things that would ground them as God's people are gone. They've been removed. The temple has been destroyed. The priests who served there have been taken away. Some of them have been murdered. The land is gone. All these things that help them to make sense of the world, who they were, 
what they were called to do, what, what life was like, where they were going, all being removed from them. Existential questions just floating up, identity questions. What, what is this? Who am I? What's going to happen? In verse 7, we read that her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Mocked, ridiculed by the enemy of God's people. Verse 10, the enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. Everything precious to them has either been taken by force or destroyed. And not only is the temple gone, but the priests have been murdered and killed, we read later on. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. They're starving. They're doing anything. They will trade anything for a piece of bread. And the, the weakest, the youngest, and the oldest amongst them are the first to die. Verse 18, but here all you people see my suffering. My young women, my young men have gone into captivity. See, this is what the foreign powers at the time would do. They would take the best, the brightest, the strongest just read Daniel to see what happens there. And they would, they would leave the weakest or the powerless to fend for themselves in the ruins of the city. And the prophet Jeremiah, he brings all this to God. See, what he do? And he, he does, he takes this situation, he brings it to God. And he speaks it to God. And he gives the people a language. So he's speaking to God on behalf of the people. He's given them a language to speak. And this is God's word. So God has given us permission to bring it all to him, to work it all out with him. And so he's expressing emotion with them. He's expressing emotion for them in what happened to them. He's given that A to Z of this human range of suffering, emotion and pain and questions that are going on. Verse 2, he says that she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted and she herself suffers bitterly, groaning, bitter, suffering. Verse 7, helpless. Verse 8, we see the groaning is because of shame and embarrassment. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Verse 12, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me. Verse 13, stunned. Verse 14, weak. Verse 15, they're rejected and crushed. Verse 16, there's tears and weeping, depression and desolation. In verse 20, we read of great distress. Hearts twisted up inside, literally wrung within is the phrase that is used. And it goes on and on and on. Weakness, fainting, no comfort. The whole range of human suffering talked about. See, Lamentation, folks, is a hard read. It is, in many ways, a book like no other that we're going to come to in the Bible in, in many ways. But God, in his wisdom and his grace, has given this book to us. And he's given it to us to help us process pain and grief. It's full of, of expressions of grief, expressions of anguish in, in the most horrific circumstance, I mean, we read this and we, we read what I've shared there. You've got to admit that's a horrific situation that they're struggling through. And what is being given us here is this A to Z expression of it, expressing what's going on and what's happening. God giving words through the prophet Jeremiah to shape our grief. God giving permission to come to him 
And that is so gracious. We're going to see this just in a minute as we process why this happened to them. Permission to talk to him, bring our tears to him, our emotional turmoil to him. It says this, arise, cry out in the night, pour out your hearts to God. That is a call from the prophet to God's people. So first lesson, what can we learn from lament? No matter what the situation, no matter how bad the situation has got, no matter what state you are in, no matter what state your life is in, no matter what is going on around you or within you, you can turn to God, you can take it to God. God cares about our emotion, our tears, and our weeping. Secondly, our second lesson from lament, there is a root cause that only God can deal with. Folks, this is where it gets really interesting with an extra bit of challenge. Who made this happen? So we know historically as we look at this, well, Babylon, that was the, the big empire at the time that was taking over all the different places around the Middle East at this point. It's Babylon that ransacked the city. But what's clear as you read chapter 2, behind it, and, and these chapters, sorry, is behind it is God. Verse 5, because the Lord has afflicted her. Verse 12, in light of the sorrow that they're experiencing, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Verse 17, the Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Chapter 2, and this is Verse 1 through to verse 9 is so challenging. I'll just read a few of these verses. Just listen to the, the he and the his about God. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughters of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughters of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins in strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. God, in righteous, holy, and perfect anger, did this. In wrath, he brought it down. He did it. God used Babylon to carry out his purpose. He even allowed them into his sanctuary to ruin it. But why? Why would God do that? Why? And here is the root cause of the problem. And we'll come back to some of those verses that I've mentioned as we circle back around. Verse 5, the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions, her sin. The people sin. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. Verse 18, I have rebelled against his word. Verse 22, you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. Same tune is being played all the way through this. God's people rebelled against God. God gave so many warnings. Warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. Let me give you a bit of 
background to understand that. You see, after, after David and Solomon, this kind of golden age of Israel, um, Israel was split into two parts. The nation was divided into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom was Israel. And Israel was ruled by, ruled by one evil king after another, evil king after evil king after evil king after evil king. And after repeated warnings, many, many warnings, through prophets, through the people, by his word, God constantly saying to them, stop doing this, don't do this, this will happen if you carry on doing it. They ignored him and they were conquered by Assyria, which was the major power at that point in 722 BC. And they were taken off into captivity. This was a very public, it wasn't hidden this, this was public. A public shame and a public defeat, a public warning and a public captivity that should have actually warned Judah, but it didn't. And they followed the same path. They were even, as I've said, worshipping these other so-called gods. God gave warning after warning after warning after warning to them. He even says, look what I did to Israel. Stop doing this. Injustice and cruelty and oppression were rampant. They were worshipping other things. They were doing horrific sins. And he was saying, stop it or this will happen. Stop it or this will happen. Stop it or this will happen. Warning after warning, but they rejected God and they rebelled. God is gracious and God is slow to anger, but the reality is he will judge human evil. But what's really important and what's really interesting as we read these chapters here is how the prophet's Jeremiah processes and expresses this reality. Verse 5, God afflicted us because of our sins. That's what he says. Verse 14, my sin caused me to fail. He's speaking on behalf of the people too. Verse 18, he says this, the Lord is in the right. I have rebelled against his word. Do you see that? He's not angry at God. There's no self-righteousness here. This is confession of sin, both corporate on behalf of the people and personal Sin and human brokenness against a holy God. And this here is an acknowledgement and a processing. The brokenness, the brokenness that is being expressed here and experienced here is because of people's sin. So the second thing we can learn from lament here is that there is a root problem behind all brokenness, all pain, and all suffering that we experience. And it is the sin of humanity against the holy God. But before I move to the last lesson, Where's the comfort here? Where is, where is the comfort here? See, tears are a big theme throughout it. As you read Lamentations, you'll see certain themes, certain threads that if you pull, you will see like the page moving across the, the next five chapters that, that, that run through it. And there is a theme here of tears, one of the themes that we see. And weeping. And yes, we see that sin has caused this brokenness, the corporate sin of humanity that God has to deal with. And yes, we see the corporate sin of God's people, Israel, that God is dealing with. But God in his grace, he doesn't block the way to himself. He still invites people in. He still helps with the brokenness and pain. Sin caused it. God deals with it, but he cares with us and he cares about us in the process. He cares about the people's emotions and tears and weeping that they're experiencing. We even read that, that, he, that he helps us through our tears. There's a, a guy called Nicholas Walsterstorp. He wrote, he wrote a book called How to Lament, Lament for a Son. And he says this in the book, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. See, weeping and lament help us to see things 
and feel things the way that God sees and feels. This world is broken. This is not all that is. We are heading in a direction. God has acted, is acting, and will act. There is a purpose and a point. Lament help us to see and be a part of that. And we don't seek out suffering and pain. We don't. Suffering and pain will enter your life if it hasn't entered already. There will be grief. There will be death. There will be decay that will enter your life at some point. But let me say that there is something beautiful in the brokenness as well that we can't miss. It might be a perception of reality and understanding. Often what we find, and often my experience from talking to people who've walked through real deep emotional pain and anguish, it's the closeness to God in suffering that stands out. But we also see tears through the Bible. There's a psalm, Psalm 56, verse 8, where David, who, who writes it, he says this, he said, God keeps our tears in a bottle. What's he saying? That means he notices, I was speaking to someone a bit earlier on today who, who struggled through a lot of situations and has struggled through a lot of pain. And actually, this truth was something that stood out to him, the fact that none of those tears went unnoticed. The upset in the quiet of a room quiet of your heart when no one else is around God sees God notices God cares and God remembers you know it's not that they're wasted or not noticed God knows God sees you and we read as we head into the gospels that Jesus wept in John's gospel so Jesus himself God himself became human stepped into the pain and the brokenness of human experience and he wept why did he weep he wept over the death of his friend he cared deeply. He was moved emotionally. He understands pain and grief. He cares about your sadness. He cares about your tears. He cares about the emotions you experience. And, and even more than that, he understands it. He's not just a God who watches from far off and observes and gives pointers. He's a God who actually has experienced every single emotion, anguish, pain, suffering that we have. He understands. And where are we going? We read Revelation, which describes that end point. When all things will be made new, that new creation. And what do we read about tears and the new creation? Every tear will be wiped from our eye. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. Folks, that means there is an end point. There is an end point to your tears. And that end point to your tears, folks, when all tears, all pain, all sorrow, all grief, all of it will be stopped will be that tender hand of God reaching over, wiping them away. No more. No more, child. No more. That's gone now. That's gone. We're safe. But folks, there's also a comfort in our guilt and a comfort in our shame. You see, I think that's one layer as we, look, as we get to Lamentations 1 and 2 that possibly might give us a different angle on lamenting. So we've looked at this process, the how-to of lament. Now we learn from lament. And this, I think, raises up some questions, unearths some stuff that are a little bit more tricky. Guilt and shame and sin in the midst of pain and grief and suffering. That's hard. You know, when the, the kind of the, the, the emotional um, explosivity, effectively, of, of grief and anguish and pain and suffering, you introduce words like this. It's like, oh, how do we process this? We were praying as elders before the, the first service, and one of the guys was praying about, he used the word, uproot. And it's just a clear picture in my head of this uprooting and how important it is. And I don't know if you've got a garden or not, but there are times of the year when you have to do a lot of root work and you have to, to dig away. And it's hard work. It's hard graft. You don't actually see the results straight away. But if you don't do it, a lot of bad stuff happens. But if you do do it, further down the line, you get to see the benefits of that. 
I think sometimes things like this is, is that. Sometimes this passage and working through this stuff, it might be, okay, just maybe tell us this stuff, Paul. It's like, no, I think sometimes we have to work through these things to actually dig away. And it might not be that you see the fruit of this right now, but if we approach this and walk this through well as a church with each other, you will see the fruit and the life and the blessing of doing this root work. A slow work sometimes. A patient work. A challenging work. Only God can deal with the problem of human sin. That's the reality, folks. That's a challenge. You can't deal with it. You can't deal with it. You can't do enough good works. You can't pay enough penance for the things that you've done. Only God can deal with human sin. You can't. You'll destroy yourself if you try to. And sin, our rejection of God, it's, it's what separates us from God. He is the source of life. So He is the creator. We are the created. He is the source of life. So our sin separates us from that source of life. And that is the reason for the death and the decay that we experience. And with our sin, with our walking away from God, with our rebellion, with our stepping over the wrong lines, with our sin that comes with us, what comes with our sin is guilt and shame. What do we do with our sin? What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our shame? It is so destructive. There's a film that we were, a film, a, a drama series on BBC One that some friends of ours last week suggested that we watch. It said it's really good. It's called Time. It's just a new one. It's a three-part series. It's, it's about prisoners and life in a prison stars Sean Bean. It's really good. It's written by Jimmy McGovern, so it's a lot of scousers in it. So it's quite real. It feels quite real. It feels quite raw and, and gritty. And these prisoners, quite a few of them are, are murderers. And then in conversations, you get to see just the reality of people trying to process guilt and shame. And the guilt is killing them. It's turning a lot of them up inside. And many of them just, they can't deal with it. They don't know where to turn with it. They don't know what to do with it. It distorts, it destroys them internally, but you can see the guilt and the shame of not processing, not knowing what to do with it. It doesn't just destroy internally, but starts to destroy out here relationships and the way that they engage with people and there's this one scene where the uh, appearance of a, of a man who was murdered meet the, the man who murdered their son and they talk about and the hope is forgiveness and they just can't forgive him and you can just see the distortion for those guys of living in unforgiveness but also the distortion of this guy of knowing that he's not forgiven it tears him up and you see that unfold through the next couple of episodes just what the weight of that does to him Guilt and shame, folks, are too heavy to carry. Too heavy to carry. They distort us. There is the amazing news of the gospel that totally transforms all of this, folks. It really does. God has to deal with our sin. Only God can deal with it. And the good news is that God has dealt with our sin and God has dealt with our guilt. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the only human being. God himself became a human. He is the only human who didn't sin. He did everything right. He lived perfectly before God. He lived in light, light of his Father's will in every single way. He didn't sin, but he died in our place. The Bible tells us that he became our sin. He took our punishment. And all of God's anger, you want to read about God's anger, then sometimes I think it's worth going to chapters 1 and 2 and being like, <gasps> it almost makes you catch your breath and think, wow. Do we contemplate what the anger of a, an infinite, holy, perfect, righteous God is like? That is fearsome, scary, and frightening. And all of that anger, all of that anger was poured out upon God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. 
All of that anger was poured out upon Jesus Christ and he absorbed it all for those who trust in him. God dealt with sin. God dealt with guilt. God dealt with shame by pouring it all on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the comfort. That we can take our sin. We can take our guilt. We can take it all to the cross. And the wonderful news is, folks, that we can leave it there. He actually, it's like he undoes the weight around our necks. He says, let me take that for you. That weight that you carry, the weight that sits deep, the weight that just won't stop niggling away your consciousness. He says, let me take that for you. Let me take that for you. And he says, it's gone. As far as the east is from the west. And that's one of the big lessons we can learn from lament, folks. The freedom in Christ that we have to confess our sin. The freedom in Christ that we have to to let go of our guilt. In the Old Testament, we read about David. I mentioned him before, of one of the, the good kings in Judah. It's from the line of David that Jesus comes. David was messed up. We read in the stories of David that he committed adultery and he murdered someone. And in Psalm 51, what we get is a lament for his sin. So David laments his sin. He laments his guilt. And he comes to God and he asks for forgiveness. He asks for restoration. What does he find? He finds freedom. He finds forgiveness. He finds restoration in God. Because that's the only place you'll find it. You won't find it anywhere else. You'll only find it in God. So we can turn to God in our guilt. And there is nothing that you have done that can exceed the grace of God, folks. I need to say this. And I really want you to just take a moment to pause. We're all carrying something. We are. We all mess up. We all either have messed up, we are messing up. We all are maybe carrying things in the depths of our hearts that we just don't want to talk about. It might be something that you just don't want to take to God because it's too shameful. Maybe you're too embarrassed of it, too ashamed of it. It might be that you're thinking that, I'm not sure that when I say it explicitly, I don't think God could forgive me of that. God knows exactly what it is. He knows exactly how you think about it, exactly how you feel about it. The only thing I can do for you folks, if you're in that state, in that place, you don't know what to do with it, you don't know where to go with it, can I ask you to lift up your head and look at the Lord Jesus Christ? He is infinitely good infinitely good, infinitely worthy, infinitely perfect. And when he died on your place, if you trust in him, if you, die, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he died in your place and he took the punishment for that sin. There's nothing that you can do, nothing that you can say, nothing that you can feel which will actually stop or turn that away if you are his and you come to him. He's paid for it. And if you're struggling, folks, struggling to even think how do I process that this is the wonder of working through these passages yes they're hard and yes we might want to go come on let's just get to the gospels or let's get to a lovely letter of Paul's where we can just praise him but God has us in this now and I think this is a rooting work this is the time in the garden where we have to do some dig work digging work folks this is important let's see a longer term let's not be driven by immediate results let's do the work if you're struggling and thinking I want it gone I don't know how to do it I don't know where how do I even begin to process my guilt to God God in his grace has given you Psalm 51. Sit down, pray it through and ask him to help you do the same. Maybe just speak the words to God. Do you know what? Every day when you get up, just try doing the same. And each day, 
Pray to God and ask him. Help him to give you the ask him to help you with the words, to help you process it. What a gracious God that he doesn't just forgive us of our guilt and our sin and our shame. He comes and says, Let me help you with that. I know you're struggling. Here's some words to help you. Here's the freedom you have in me. Come on, come closer. Come here. Listen. You don't need to carry it anymore. So then, off the back of that, I think, I don't know about you, but as I was working this through in my mind and in presenting this to you guys, actually some questions started to raise up. And the question is, as we process this, okay, we process the book of Lamentations, is all my pain and suffering and anguish, therefore, is what you're saying is because of my sin? Is that what you're saying? Let me make it even more real because some people in the, the church are going through this really specifically now am I ill because of my sin is my health poor because of my sin is that what you're saying and that's not what I'm saying here I need to say that straight off but please, please hear this but I think what this passage and these chapters do they create a healthy space for us to enter into and work things out in light of God's word and that's a challenge so let me explain that for us. So in John 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples and they ask him this, mistakenly ask him a question and, and there's, there's a blind guy there. And what happens is they say to, to Jesus, this blind man, did he sin or did his parents sin? Who was it that, he was born, that, he was, that he's blind? And Jesus Christ answers them and he says, neither. It wasn't his parents or his sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's being said here is the point is that the world is broken because of sin I've come to fix it. I've come to heal. I've come to put things right. I've come to fix what is broke. He's pointing to the greater reality. He's helping them understand that greater reality. Or you read the book of, of Job in the Old Testament. And it's a book about a, a man who walks through incredible suffering. 50 chapters, over 50 chapters. And this man suffered terribly. And what you find up at the end, he ends up vindicated. What I mean by that, he, he didn't suffer because of his sin. But then we have lamentations with the destruction, the problem is caused directly by the people's sin. And I think that gives us pause and I think it gives us a space, space to sit and pray and ask God, okay, God, in light of this, in light of Christ, in light of the forgiveness I have, what do I need to confess? Is there something that I need to lament? Is there sin and guilt like David that I need to lament? Is this punishment? Is it consequence? Is it discipline? Let's just pause there for a minute and, and think those things through. Let me just say really clearly, I don't think, biblically, this side of the cross, that anything you suffer is punishment. I don't think that anything that you suffer is punishment. Why do I say that and why do I think that? Because of what I've just explained. The Lord Jesus Christ takes all your punishment all your punishment is not punitive at all and so we look to him but there may be consequences there may be consequences of some bad choices that you've made things that you might have said or done recently before you became a christian all of those things there might be consequences from patterns of behavior that you had i became a christian when i was 28 i'd lived a life before then there are consequences of some of the decisions i made back then that affect me even now and we have to walk through them. So what do we do with those things? These are all things that, that we are to work out with God's help and his people's help for his glory and the good of 
others around us. We have a different way of processing those consequences. We don't just leave them. We have to process them rightly. But also, folks, there may be times of discipline. And I want you to listen here. God disciplines those that He loves. God disciplines His children. Discipline is used as a way that God uses to bring us closer to Himself. To maybe force us to ask questions that that maybe highlight or show us what we're trusting, things that we might be trusting in which aren't Him, things that we might be living for which aren't Him, which are damaging and wrong for us. Maybe we're putting things in the wrong wrong order. The Lamentations, we see things like Jerusalem, the temple, their identity, they had it all wrong. They misunderstood even what those things were. It might be that our thinking, our desires, our emotions, they've got distorted in some way. And what God does, he puts us and helps us to walk through things that he can show us the truth and the beauty of what it means to live rightly in relationship with him. If something is not safe or unhealthy for us, for trusting in anything outside of God, God will remove it to bring us closer to himself, back to a place of safety. But it could be, and this is a challenge, folks, and it's a challenge for people in the church right now, in this room and in the first service. Could be that you're suffering as a consequence of somebody else's sin. What do we do with that? And that could be now. That could be something from childhood. It could be something that's been done to you. It could be something that's being done to you right now. What do we do? Obviously, if there's something that you need to talk and you need to come to and the right way to process it, we need to do it and we need to work that out. But how do we process when we are victims of somebody else's sin? There's only one thing I can point you to there, folks, and that's turn to Jesus. It's the only answer I've got. It's the only wisdom I have because it comes from the Bible. Turn to Jesus because he knows exactly what that's like. He knows exactly what that's like. I hope you hear what I'm saying there. We process it in light of the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship we have with him. So if we can't process those things, we ask him for help. We ask him for strength. And we walk with him along the way. And in light of that, I think that leads us to our last lesson in lament, which is that lament awakens the soul. See, walking that path of sorrow, what it does, it draws our eye to the Lord Jesus Christ. It helps us to realize what God says about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, that he was the, the man of sorrows. And so in lament and in sorrow, there is a fellowship with God that we just don't find anywhere else. And there is a fellowship, not just with God, but also a fellowship with each other. And so when we receive comfort from God in our pain, when we see that our guilt and our shame has been removed, our guilt has been removed, our shame has been covered, it gives us joy, it gives us peace it gives us life and naturally as we experience that that right relationship with God it naturally moves us and our hearts towards other people those in our church family we carry burdens together we don't do it alone we carry burdens together we move together through the ups and through the downs and also the world around us. You see, Lamentations 1, what you experience and what you see from the people around them was a mocking. They mocked them as they walked through this. See, we as believers, we can be mocked. How do we deal with that? We are a people who've been restored through brokenness. 
And as we move out in that gracious way that God calls us to, we do it in light of the fact that we understand forgiveness. We understand the freedom we have. We understand eternal life and we understand never-ending hope because we've been given it all. And so in light of that, we can pray for those who haven't got what we have got. We can pray for friends. We can pray for for family. We can pray for our neighbors. We can pray for our communities, our, our city, our corrupt governments, our nation, the world as we see it. We can pray for it. Maybe this week, could you set aside time to ask that God would awaken your soul? Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you're sat here today and you're You've never heard the good news of the gospel. Or, can I say, you're hearing this today and there's something different about this message today. It's not that I've changed or anything's changed. Nothing's happened. On Tuesday night, we, we gathered in, in that room with the, myself and Ben with six of the guys who were getting baptized on, on this week. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Wonderful time. And, and what happens in those moments of the people who are getting baptized, I can see the faces of a few of them now. It was just great hearing your stories and, and hearing how God had blessed you and shaped you and changed you. And just the look on their faces as they were expressing what it meant to them and what had happened to them. And it was so interesting what I think four of them out of six said. They were like, well, it was this. And I was listening and, it, and I was just turning away. It didn't really make, and then all of a sudden it started making sense. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, that Jesus is real. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I get what you guys are saying. Even to the point where, where one of the, 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 the ladies who were coming, she was going to get baptized last year. hope you don't mind me doing this. Let me start over there. But she was going to get baptized last year. And she decided that not to get baptized at the time. She thought she believed. And then over the course of COVID and over this for a number, of, I'll let her tell her story next, next, next week. But over that course, she's, it started to make sense. And all of a sudden, she's like, I get it now. I get what you guys are saying. I get what the guys are singing about. I get what's going on. What is that, folks? That is God awakening our souls. That is God giving us eyes to see the wonder and beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. So, folks, can I just press that out to you guys again? If you're sat here today and you don't know Jesus, would you ask God right here, right now, right? Just say, awaken my soul. My guess is that he is the one who's even causing you to ask that question. Just turn to him. But also, Christian brothers and sisters, I think what lament teaches us when it awakens our soul is that your individual sin, your individual situation, your, your individual sorrow, and we live in an individualistic society that just wants to push this down on us, they are not the only problems. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to realize, to lift our head up. Your situation is not the only situation. There's so much going on around you. It might be that God has used this past year, this past experience of a year to actually reshape us. It may be that God is doing that work in your soul, that, that uprooting that I talked about before might not just be taking place today, but might have been taking place for a whole year and a half. And maybe we're going to start to see that wonderful fruit of what God's been doing over a year and a half in the quiet, in the rooting times, in the grafting on your knees in the soil. Don't ignore it, folks. Ask God to help you walk it well. Growth can be difficult. It can be painful at times. Maybe you felt like you've drifted spiritually. This past year has been difficult. You've struggled to connect, struggled to connect with God and His Word and struggled to pray and struggled to come along. Maybe you're coming along today, but a lot of the time you just feel like you're going through the motions. What do you do with that? 
Maybe this is an opportunity right now to recognize, yes, I've sleepwalked through this past year, but ask God that he would awaken your soul. What we're going to get to next week is that God's mercies are new every morning. Just hear that played over and over again. We are a God of ne- we, we are a people of a God who has never-ending mercies that He just pours out and pours out and pours out every single day, every single day. Maybe this year hasn't been wasted. Maybe God's been doing a work. Turn to Him and ask Him to awaken your soul. Ask Him to do a work in your heart for the people around, so that so you don't just observe and sit here on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday or a Thursday, but you actually feel what's going on. And you can lament for the people around you. That you would feel like grief. That you would lament and not just read the news and not just see what's going on in our city or our nation, but you would feel it. And we would lament the wrongdoing. We would lament the injustice. We would lament the the, the lies or the pain or the sorrow that is going on immediately around us, but also throughout this broken world. So for this first week, what can we learn from lament? God cares about our situations. He cares about our tears. And he invites us to bring it all to him. There is an underlying problem of sin and guilt that only God can fix. And the wonderful news is that he has fixed it in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the process of lamenting, of coming to God, God awakens the soul to help us to see that it's not just about my sin, my suffering, my sorrow, but the people and the place and the time that God has put me in. Let me pray.